Gracias por lo que el Señor está haciendo a través de ustedes. All right. Um, let's open our Bibles. Let's uh, grab our Bibles. We're going to open our Bibles to Mark 10. We're going to read verses 35 to 45. Um, before uh, we read the passage, you know, as I was prepping my message this week, I was thinking, about how can I open the message? You know, I need to have a, an illustration, a story. And then I thought, wait, Fidel and Charito are going to be right before I preach. I don't need to come up with a story. Because the topic that we're going to talk about is service. And I can think of very few people that serve in a way that, in the way that they do. Um, some of you have been to Casa Esperanza. Some of you went just recently. And you may remember, um, Austin, you may remember when we were in Casa Esperanza, they showed us, they took us to the piece of land that they own where they were dreaming to build a house so that they can retire because after 30 years of ministry, they're thinking about retirement. That was five months ago. Yesterday I sit with them and they're telling me, oh, we're starting a new home. <laughs> and that's the kind of people they are. And we love them. We're so thankful for them. You know, last time I went to Casa, I met a young lady who was visiting from the Netherlands. She was at the same time we were there. And uh, as I got to talking to her, I realized she, she was not a believer. And I asked her, why, why are you here? And she told me, you know, I've, I first visited when I was 11 years old. I heard what was going on in Casa Esperanza, all the way from the Netherlands. I heard what the Lord was, I mean, what was going on in Casa Esperanza. And I just knew I had to go. And so I convinced my mom. She took me there when I was 11 years old, and then two years later, I came back when I was 13. Now she's 18, she's currently in, you know, in, in college, and she had a break, and she said, I just have to go to Casa de Esperanza. And I asked her why, and she told me, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know, but there's something about this place that makes me want to come back. She said, there's something about the way Fidel and Charito serve the children that makes no sense. What keeps me coming back. Now here this morning, I'm not here to preach Casa de Esperanza. I'm here to preach the gospel. Amen. But it is precisely the gospel that has compelled my brother and sister here to lay down their lives for the glory of God and for service of others. Their service literally opened up the door for me to be able to share the gospel with this girl. Now, she is not yet a believer, but I believe that the Lord is working in her heart and it keeps drawing her to himself. But in part, that's because their lives loudly proclaim a message that the world doesn't understand. While the world pushes us to, to seek meaning and greatness through amassing wealth and power, the gospel calls us to losing our lives for the sake of others. It makes no sense. You see, Fidel and Charito's lives, their selfless service to the children of Casa de Esperanza loudly proclaims the counterintuitive nation of, I mean, nature of the kingdom. Their lives are a testimony of the words of Christ, who, as we will see in the moment, he said to us that to be great, one needs to be a servant. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. There is something about the gospel that makes no sense to the world. And honestly, it also makes no sense to our flesh, right? 
The gospel calls us to lay down our lives for the glory of God and for the benefit of those around us. You see, the gospel turns even the most selfish sinner into a joyful servant. I love Fidel and Charito. If you were to sit down with Fidel, he can tell you his testimony of of alcohol and drug addiction and how the Lord redeemed them and changed his life. And he now lives for the sake of the Lord that transformed him. Today, I want to talk about the service. About what service looks like in the life of the local church. And in order to do that, I want us to read from the book of Mark. So would you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 and on. I'm going to start by reading 35 to 41. And would you mind standing with me as we read the word of the Lord? It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Bold of them, right? And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And he said to them, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism that, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, hand, or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those of, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And this is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, knowing, Lord, that we need you. We turn to you through your word and we pray, Lord, would you speak to us today? Heavenly Father, I pray that as you, that as we um, look at your word today, Father, that if there is anything that I say that does not align to the truth of the gospel, Lord, I pray for you to fall down and to be forgotten. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would make us a church that discerns through your word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning, I want us to see Number one, the worldly greatness is radically different from kingdom greatness. The first thing I want you to notice from this passage is the fact that even for those who were in Jesus' inner circle, even for those people, James and John, they were part of Jesus' inner circle, right? They They were some of, not only part of the 12, but they were also part of the three that were close to Jesus. And even they were seduced by greatness as presented by the world. As human beings, we naturally love the idea of being great, don't we? Ever since the fall in Genesis 3, we are all glory thieves. We all want to be recognized. We all want to be admired and maybe even spoiled by others. We want to make everything about ourselves. It doesn't help that the world relentlessly encourages us to amass wealth, to seek attention, or to, in, in the words of the great Tom Haverford, treat yourself, right? <laughs> you see, our ego, our pride, our self-centeredness and selfishness blind us to what the gospel actually calls us to do. The story we just read is kind of embarrassing for James and John, isn't it? The sons of Zebedee. And if you think Mark's telling of the story is bad, you should take a look at the way that Matthew describes the story. Because in his telling of the story, he gives us a little extra detail. 
And that detail is that when John and James were requesting from Jesus to sit at his rand, at his right, I'm sorry, and at his left, they actually asked their mama to go do it for them. They sent mom to us, hey, Jesus, can my kids sit, you know, to your right and to your left? It's embarrassing. You see, James and John and their mama, they were so blinded by their desire for greatness that they completely missed what Jesus was telling them just moments before. In the paragraph right above our passage, Jesus tells them very clearly and for the third time, something that would change history, something that we will be celebrating today. Jesus tells his disciples very clearly that they are headed to Jerusalem and that once there, he would be condemned, he would be mocked, he would be spit on, he would be flogged, and he would be killed. Then he tells them the most amazing news ever, literally the most amazing news in all of history of humanity. He tells them that after three days, he would rise again. Church, he is telling them the glorious news of the gospel. And how do they react? They're like, yes, uh, very sad. Anyway, can you do us a favor? Can we sit at your right and left hand when you're in glory? You see, James and John are so seduced by the idea of greatness that they seem to completely miss the point of what Christ is doing. By asking to sit at his right and left hand, they seem to think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to somehow claim the throne and to establish an earthly kingdom. They're dead wrong. But they think he's setting up a kingdom for himself and they want a piece of it. They want some glory. They want recognition. They want some of what they think he's about to achieve. They're blind. Jesus is clearly telling them where he's headed, and they don't get it. You see, when they ask Jesus to, to uh, when they ask to sit uh, next to Jesus in, in his glory, they don't mean in heaven. They think Jesus is about to get, to get earthly glory, and they want some of it. Unfortunately, James and John, as foolish as they are, they're not alone, are they? They, make the, they made the same mistake many of us made when we first came to Christ. Because you see, we often come wondering what we can get from the gospel. As if the gospel is a means to an end. And if we're not careful... We might reduce the kingdom of God to a program or a step that serves to enhance our personal kingdom. Thinking that adding Christianity to our lives is an add-on to our personal kingdom, right? We, we think Christianity will just make it better. It'll make my kingdom a little shinier and better and maybe easier to live in. But that's not the gospel. This is a costly mistake. Not only because it robs us from the blessing of living for the glory of God, but also because it has consequences to other people. It hurts those around us. T.S. Eliot put it this way. He said, Half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them. 
or they do not see it, or they justify it because they are absorbed by the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Isn't this the truth? Isn't this the truth? We are so absorbed sometimes by our desire for greatness or glory that we cause a lot of harm. You see, this misplaced desire for greatness not only hurts others, but it also distorts our theology. Did you notice that before they told Jesus what they wanted, they said to him, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You see that? This is an early version of the prosperity gospel. I want Jesus, but I want him to do whatever I want. And this is diametrically opposed to how Jesus taught them to pray. Remember, when he taught them to pray, what did he tell them to say? He taught them to say, your kingdom come, your will be done. But these two are effectively saying, our will be done. Jesus taught his disciples to pray early in his ministry. And even after spending extended time on the side of Jesus, James and John still don't get it. They had a very limited view of Christ's ministry. The worst part of this story is that when I see James and John, I realize that we are all James and John. This is the default of the human heart. You see, one of the effects of the fall is that it distorted the way that we see, li we see life. We now view life through the lens of our own glory. We are bent inwardly, and by nature, we want to make everything about us. And as we do that, we usurp God's place. We put ourselves on the throne. When we put ourselves at the center, It causes conflicts with others because we see those around us as our rivals. Mark tells us that James and John's request did not amuse the other disciples. They were indignant. They were ticked off. In his book, Every Good Endeavor, Tim Keller explains it this way. He says, sin has natural consequences. The desires of the sinful heart create strains in the fabric of the real world that always lead to breakdown. Our pride and need for personal significance necessarily lead to competition, disunity, and strife. So a life of self-glorification makes unity and love between people impossible. It leaves us with the dreary choice between making the self an idol, which leads to the disunity of individualistic cultures, and making the group an idol, which leads to the suppression of individual freedom in tribal or collective cultures. The two things we all want so desperately, glory and relationship, can only coexist with God. You see, James and John had a distorted view of the kingdom of God. By looking for greatness uh, and by positioning themselves, uh, you know, by looking for a position for themselves, they put themselves in conflict with others. The other disciples were indignant. But Jesus quickly corrects this. In this passage, Jesus teaches us what true greatness looks like. And I want you to read that with me in <clears throat> verses 42 to 44. And here, I want you to see that in the kingdom of God, true greatness is found through service. 
Verse 42 says, uh, says this, it says, and Jesus called them, <clears throat> sorry, and Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of, of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must um, be slave of all. So not for the first time, Jesus is patiently correcting James and John. Do you remember there was another instance where all the disciples, they're discussing who's the great one. They were pretty, pretty hooked with the desire of being great. They're having this discussion, who's the greatest? And Jesus is like, hey, what are you guys talking about? You know, and, then, and they're embarrassed. And Jesus told them then what he tells them now. He tells them, um, he tells them that whoever would be great among you must be a servant. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. You see, Jesus is patiently correcting James and John's, James and John's understanding of the kingdom of God. And he does so by contra contrasting it with the behavior of worldly kings, teaching them how Christians should actually behave. He tells his disciples to consider the rulers of the Gentiles and how they treat others. Now, here in the U.S., this might not be an illustration we identify with because we don't have rulers. We don't, we don't have kings, right? And, you know, as Americans, we pride ourselves in overthrowing the monarchy. But while we may not have a monarchy to worry about, our culture is just as driven by pride, by self-centeredness, self-promotion, all of which are particularly evident in social media. Our culture often uses terms like influencer, guru, thought leader. I once met a pastor and his title and his business card was, I kid you not, transformational architect. <laughs> I might steal that one for myself. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> we love to make much of ourselves, don't we? We may have no aspirations of being monarchs or even being in government, but we love to make much of ourselves. We spend entirely too much time and energy curating our image, coming up with, with the way the world sees us. We really care about the way people think of us. We desperately crave greatness and recognition. You see, we all struggle with a version of this. The good news is that Jesus knows it. And he patiently transforms us as he transformed James and John's hearts. This story to me is funny because we often have this image of John being a humble, loving, kind guy. Right? We have this idea of, of John being so gentle, the one that Jesus loved. But that wasn't always the case. We read in the Bible not only, you know, John and his brother, you know, asking Mama to get them a position with Jesus, but in other, in other places, uh, we see them, for example, one time uh, in Samaria, after being rejected by a city of Samaria, they thought the logical solution was to call down fire from heaven to consume the city. These guys had no chill. <laughs> like, <laughs> Jesus called them the brothers, you know, they call these brothers the sons of thunder. And yet, 
as big of a mess as they were, they had a Savior. They had a patient friend who instructed them, who helped them not only see what was wrong about what they were saying, but he helped them change. A friend who at the cross would not only pay for their sins and or their rebellion, but also would provide the power for them to be transformed. So here, Jesus was teaching them a very important principle. He tells them that while the rulers of this world like to lower their authority over people to maintain an image of importance in the kingdom of God, true greatness is found by becoming servants. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And the second part kind of like rubs us the wrong way as Americans because it says, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. He tells them that if they truly want to be great, they need to see others as more important than them. Again, this is utterly counterintuitive. It makes no sense to the logic of this world. It makes no sense to our flesh. And yet, Christ in us transforms our hearts and compels us to find beauty in serving others. This, as you can imagine, had to be a paradigm shift for them. Not only for James and John, but for, the, for all the disciples. Tim Keller compares becoming a Christian to moving into a new country, but the difference is even more profound. When we come to Christ, we discover a new culture. We discover a new perspective. The gospel helps us see things in a new and different light. As someone who's lived in a couple different countries, this rings true. There are things that only make sense once you've lived in a new country. There are things that take time getting used to. We'll have to call our friends going to India, you know, like, you know, I said, how are you doing with this? You know, you can talk to our friends in Africa and be like, hey, is there anything weird going on there? Yeah, I'm telling you, they have stories. For us, when we lived in Malaysia, initially driving on the other side was, the, was tricky, but not as tricky as learning how to use the squat toilet, right? <laughs> Living in a new culture is hard, and it takes time. It takes getting used to. It's infuriating, honestly. But when it comes to the gospel, though, we don't do it alone. We don't do it in our own effort, because not only do we have a community that's walking with us, but Christ is in us. And His love compels us to live the way He lived, to serve others, and to lay down our lives for the sake of our neighbor. See, the great thing about this is that Jesus doesn't just instruct us or compels us to do it. He models it perfectly. And for that, I want you to read verse 45. And I want you to see here that the model for Christian service is found in Christ. Verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, when Jesus taught his disciples about living a life of service, he showed them the way through his actions. Throughout his time with them, Jesus had modeled a life of humble and loving service. Christ frequently demonstrated genuine, great, genuine greatness. Uh, he, he 
demonstrated that genuine greatness is achieved through humble service. For some reason, in the kingdom of God, exaltation is only found through humiliation. You know, the very night when Jesus is walking with these guys, that very night, Christ would humble himself to the role of a servant and he would wash their nasty feet. More significantly, Christ exemplified this principle in all its glory at the cross where he sacrificed his life as a ransom for many. Christ demonstrated his love for us in that at the cross he laid down his life so that we would live. So the question is, what does the service look like for us? Well, we are called to serve in the context of the local church and in the context of the world around us. One of my recent sermons, I mentioned that there are at least 59 one another's in the New Testament because our faith is communal by nature. When we come to Christ, we are removed from the center of our lives. We go from being inwardly focused to outwardly, outwardly focused. So if we are part of a community, which we are, the local church is the primary context for our service. So first, we are called to serve in the local church. Now, this may sound like I'm recruiting people to come do our job. That's not what I'm doing. I think Paul puts it well in 1 Thessalonians 2.8 when talking about his time of the church. He said this, he said, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Do you see that relationship? Does it sound like an imposition? Does it sound like a chore? No. Paul wanted to share his life with everyone in the church. In church, this is what life in the local church should look like. A place where we share not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. It's a place where we, where we become dear to one another. In his sovereignty, God has strategically placed you and me in this local church. And he has given each of us different gifts for the purpose of serving this specific body. Now, I know some of you might be looking at yourselves as I did growing up and think, well, I don't have much of a gift. And you would be wrong. First Peter 4, 10 and 11 says this. It says, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has given us gifts that are to be used in the context of the local church. Not... For the glory of the church, not for the name of Trinity Community Church, but for the glory of God. So there are a couple of ways we see this play out in the local church. Number one, uh, through spontaneous acts of service. As we do life together, needs arise all the time. This might look like community group members making meals for those who are sick, or maybe we're helping someone move. Or maybe we're helping someone cut down a tree, you know, in their backyard. 
Uh, thank you, Bill and Rose. Um, all these examples I'm using are ways in which I have been served by this very church. All these are spontaneous ways in which we can serve and love one another. You know, the other day, so I'm, I'm joking with, with, um, with Bill and Rose, but the other day, you know, I mentioned that we needed a, a tree to be cut down, and I am useless when it comes to anything outside. Um, you can ask my wife, you don't, believe, you don't believe me? But anyways, Bill and Rose immediately said, hey, we can do it. And then I was texting Bill, I was like, man, you don't have to. Like, you don't, no pressure. Don't. And he's like, that's community, brother. That was his response. That's community, brother. And I, I agree with him. That's community, brother. That's community, sister. Serving one another. We also serve in the church through structured church ministries. Here at Trinity, we also have structured ministries where members can plug in and serve in very specific ways. The moment you walk through our doors, you can see people serving. Did you see, did you get children today writing your name tag for you when you came in? Wasn't that the best? The moment you walk through our doors, people are serving. Without all our volunteers, we just couldn't do this. We just could not have a service on Sunday. We have people who are part of the welcome team. You have those who serve us coffee and snacks this morning. Thank you. We have the more obvious teams like the worship team that lead us every Sunday in singing. But we also have teams like our tech team in the back that people often don't notice unless something goes wrong. <laughs> or we have those who take care of the maintenance of this building. Again, I'm useless at it. <laughs> like, um, there are people who do all these things that we don't see. But we don't have to see it. Because they're not doing it for us. They're doing it for the glory of God. We have an army of volunteers without whom this service just could not happen. But we are always in need for more. For example, I know that currently we are looking for a couple of volunteers for a medical team. So if you're interested, please talk to us at the end of the service because we could really use it. Let me ask you this morning. How are you sharing yourself with your church? I'm not saying this out of desperation. Our service is going on pretty good this morning. I'm not saying this because we're trying to recruit you. No, because it's a blessing to serve. It's a blessing to do so, not out of compulsion, but because we get to share ourselves with those we love. Now, we're not only called to serve in the local church, we are also called to serve the world around us. We are called to be light in the darkness. Each one of us is an ambassador of Christ wherever we go. If all we do is serve inside the church, we're just not getting it. I think it was Francis Chan that said that the church is like manure. If you stack it together and leave it on its own, it stinks. It stinks, right? It gets smelly and stinks. But if you spread it, it makes things grow. Our city is broken. Our city needs Christ. Our city needs you. And you and I have been strategically placed here in Titusville, Florida, or Port St. John, or Mims, wherever you are. God has placed you there with a mission. You see, the church has historically had a great impact around the world. 
Even agnostic historian Tom Holland said in one of his books, he said this Christianity has been the greatest force for good in human history. It has shaped our moral and ethical code, our values, our institutions. It has also inspired countless acts of love, compassion, and self-sacrifice. So church, our call is not to retreat. Our mission is to go in the world and to make disciples. As followers of Christ, by definition, we are supposed to follow his steps. Christ didn't isolate himself and only hung out with those he ag who agreed with him. He went into the world and brought the good news of the gospel and healing everywhere he went. And so should we. We are not called to wait for our community to come to us. But the Great Commission calls us to go out into the community. And here at Trinity, there's a couple of ways in which you can get plugged in to serve. We can, here at Trinity, we partner with, with ministries like Under the Bridge or Love, Inc. And in the near future, we'll have the opportunity to bring a team to serve in the local jail. But these are not the only ways in which you can serve your neighbor. Opportunities of service abound. And it would be good for us to be diligent in serving others. This leads me to my next point. Which is, again, we don't do this because we have to. We are motivated by Christ. The motivation for Christian service is gratitude and joy, not compulsion. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, he says this. He says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, when the love of God fills us, it overflows into service for others, as John Piper says. But ultimately, pleasing people around us is not the goal, nor is that what motivates us. If you have ever served in any sort of volunteer position, you know that serving in order to please others is a terrible motivator. If making people happy is what motivates your service, you're in big trouble. We serve others because the love of Christ compels us. Because of the cross. Because we know that through the work of Christ at the cross, we stand forgiven and free. Our service to one another flows from the cross and is a reflection of the work achieved through the cross. We do not serve others in order to earn a spiritual badge like we're Boy Scouts. We do not serve others to earn favor from God as other religions do. We serve precisely because we already know we are free and forgiven. We don't serve others to impress God because he's already pleased with us. Because of Christ's work at the cross, we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. In the play Annie, you may remember that play. There's this scene that you may remember. Annie, when, when Annie the orphan arri first arrives to Mr. Warbuck's house, Grace the housekeeper shows her around and then tells her to explore the house. And what's the first thing that she does? She goes pick up a mop and a bucket and she starts cleaning the house. When the housekeeper sees it, she, she's shocked that she tells Annie, you don't have to do that. Annie, you're our guest. You don't have to do any chores. 
And then he says, but I want to help. Are my kids here? I just I need them to. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Grace tells her, Annie, you're our guest. You don't have to do any chores. And Annie says, but I want to help. And Grace replies to her, well, thank you, dear. But I'm sure Mr. Warbucks would prefer you to enjoy your stay here. In the same way, we do not have to earn our keep. In the kingdom of God, we don't have to earn anything. We serve because we already know that he's pleased with us. Annie was used to her life in the orphanage. And she, she was so used to it that she thought she had to do stuff in order to earn her place. And we often feel the same way. We, for some reason, feel that we have to serve others to somehow impress God. But in the kingdom of God, we do not have to do that. In the kingdom of God, we are fully provided for. We serve not because we have to, but because we are pleased to do so. Knowing that our inheritance is our reward. We are already children of God. To paraphrase Dane Ortland, we don't serve others for the smile of God, but from it. We serve out of gratitude and the joy of knowing Christ. And this leads me to my last point. You see, Christ patiently transforms his followers into servants. Earlier I mentioned that this story is pretty embarrassing for James and John. And you know what? I'm grateful for stories like this. You know, the Bible is filled with stories that shows us clearly that God calls to himself broken people. The Bible never whitewashes the heroes of our faith. Never. We know exactly how big of a coward Abraham was. We know exactly how sinful David was. The Bible doesn't, doesn't hide it. We know exactly how hot-headed Peter was. And here we just saw how self-centered James and John were. We read here in, the, in this story, we read how blinded they were by the desire to be great. But we also see how patiently Jesus corrects them. If you keep reading this story, you'll see that it is immediately followed by the story of Bartimaeus, the blind man. This is a guy that shows up on the way, you know, as, as Jesus and the disciples are walking, Bartimaeus shows up and he's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? He answers, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And in that very moment, Jesus heals him of his blindness. Bartimaeus was not the only blind person in this chapter. James and John were also blind. Or at least they had blind spots. And you know what? Because we know the rest of the story, know that Christ patiently healed their blindness. Have you considered the fact that this John that we're hearing about is the same John who would write one of the four Gospels? He is the same John that wrote four letters to the church. This is the same guy who is known as the one who Jesus loved. This is the same guy that we find reclining next to Jesus because he was his friend. Later in Acts 12, we find out that James, his brother, laid down his life for the sake of his Savior. James died serving his Lord. He was one of the first martyrs. He was executed by Herod because he was preaching the word. There's clearly a change of heart. 
John, on the other hand, he had a long life. But this same guy who is asking Jesus for privilege would one day write the words of 1 John 3.16 that say, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Church, the reason I'm telling you this is because there's a chance that you too have blind spots. Maybe you too are seduced by the world's idea of greatness. Maybe you have been chasing after greatness and found nothing but frustration and dissatisfaction. Or maybe you've been lulled into passivity and are not currently serving others. But far from burdening you this morning with a to-do list, I want to point you to the hope that you are His. If you are in Christ, Christ will patiently transform you into a servant. Is this you? Cry to your Savior like Bartimaeus and ask Him to heal your blindness. Ask Him that you would see the work He has called you to do. That you would learn that in the kingdom of God, greatness only comes through service. This morning, we'll be celebrating communion. Now, this is not something we take lightly, but it is a moment of celebration. It is a moment when we, the people of God, remember that Christ indeed drank from the cup. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Christ, this morning... I want to encourage you to refrain from practicing with us, from taking the cup. But I do want to invite you to lean in. I want, you to, I want to invite you to observe. At this moment, the worship team will lead us in song. And in a moment, we will take communion. But as we sing, will you examine your heart? Will you confess to the Lord any unconfessed sin? in preparation for communion. Let us sing.